Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton Police Services Board says they will spend half a million dollars on an independent review of the violence at Pride this past June. With the success of increased enforcement on the Red Hill Valley Parkway, is there an argument to be made for permanent traffic units there? And research from the Digital Democracy Project says that our election has been largely clean from digital misinformation. So far, anyway. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, Hamilton Police Services Board has met and they have decided they want to spend at least half a million dollars on an independent review of the pride violence that occurred in June. And I would imagine that's also going to include the subsequent uh, events that were going on at Hamilton City Hall in the forecourt and a few other places around town too. Money well spent? Well, let's talk about that. John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, is our guest as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Just fine, Bill. Thanks. Uh, are you surprised by the announcement by the, by the Police Services Board to do this? Uh, only uh, in the sense that I think they could have, they should have done it sooner. I, you know, we've had two. It's been what June, so we're now into the middle of October. Seems to me that uh, this this uh, inquiry should have got started a long time ago because what we're what we've been seeing uh, for the last really four months in the media are two widely divergent views of what actually happened. And uh, the sooner we get it sorted out, the better. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, an inquiry that comes down with results basically a year after the event is is timely, but uh, better late than never, I guess. But that's the theme I got from a number of people that responded uh, uh, to me uh, by email uh, over the last couple of hours since they heard this story is what took them so long. Uh, it's not as if they, you know, they didn't know about this. It's not as if there hasn't been a great deal of controversy about this. Uh, and as you mentioned, I mean, this was June, and now here we are at, you know, just about at the end of October, and these guys decide to move on something. Uh, I don't know that this is going to satisfy anybody. I don't even know what they're going to be able to find now. I mean, the longer you, you have a distance of, of time or space between the event itself and the beginning of an investigation, uh, how, how accurate is this going to be and how effective is it going to be? Well, well, we'll see, but you're right. Um, you know, memories fade fairly quickly. Uh, there's there's a fair amount of telephone video around, but you never know, is it is it selective? Um, you know, it's, it's a big park, uh, so um, a video that maybe is only showing activity in one corner of the park uh, may not be representative of, of what went on uh, throughout the park. So it's going to be tough, uh, yet they need to do it. There's no, there's no way that you could say, well, we just won't bother because we don't think we're going to get a definitive result. Sometimes you have to go through the exercise, and, and maybe the one thing that will come out of it is that people will get to wear their grievances, and, and that may be the more benefit than uh, uh, whether we get a definitive uh, result or not. Where do you see this thing going? And I know this the announcement was just made yesterday. We don't even know who's going to be doing this. But it is going to be a rather costly endeavor. Uh, I guess the question a lot of people are going to be asking here right now is, is uh, are they going to step on toes? I mean, are they going to get to the bottom of this? Or is this just going to be one of these, you know, typical reports? Well, you know, the, both sides were wrong or whatever, and there was errors on both sides. It's, I don't know where they're going to go on this. But I, I'm, I'm apprehensive as to whether or not this is going to do any good at all. Well, it, I, I think you're right. It, it's uh, I, you know we're we're really dealing with a, uh, two polarized views of uh, of what happened. 
we do know this. Uh, there, there probably would have been no violence um, had the uh, had the the picnic, uh, the event, had it not been invaded by um, th- this group that uh, were anti-gay. If they hadn't arrived at the park, uh, there would have been no violence. On the other hand, uh, it really appears that uh, we've talked about the pink-clad uh, uh, masked people. They were there. Uh, that was not spontaneous. So clearly they were there anticipating something. And uh, so one of the key questions, I think, will be, were the police aware that there was a very likely hood of uh, there was going to be a real good chance that there was going to be some kind of a clash um, you know they they claim that they they uh, deployed officers in the vicinity of the event uh, ready to go if anything broke out but I think that's really the crux of the of the debate uh, there's you know it's the, the allegation is of course that the police have their nose out of joint because they have been asked not to come to the event, not to set up a recruiting tent, and that they deliberately dragged their feet when the violence broke out. So that's that's really the, the crux of uh, what, what needs to be determined. And anything other than answering that question will probably not satisfy anybody. There's an awful lot of misinformation, as you say, and we're getting one perspective and then somebody else with a, another perspective that seems to counter that. Uh, and, and one of the things that's always been nagging me is I, I talked to Cameron Croach, of course, uh, who was involved in that. He was there that day. And, and of course, he's been very outspoken about the, what's gone on since then as well. And, and he told me that the day before the event uh, that he had a long conversation with somebody from the Hamilton Police about where they were going to do with this thing and what was going to happen, what time they were going to be there. And they didn't just say Gage Park. He told them exactly which part of Gage Park it is. And then we had a response from the police after the whole thing happened that said, well, it's a big park. You know, it took us a while to find the place at where they were going to be. So there's, I, I, I don't know. There's got to be a record of that conversation someplace if it was a telephone call. Well, hopefully there will be. And, and you know, those are the kind of questions that, that have to be answered. Um, I did think as well that uh, the chief uh, could have chosen his words a little better in the, in the story where he, the, the way he portrayed the decision to have the inquiry was it was a police board decision. He, he really wanted, seemed to want to distance himself uh, from any part of the decision-making to hold the inquiry. Now, I think I understand why he's doing that. He's under pressure to not throw his uh, officers under the bus, and, and so he, I think the message he was trying to send out was, uh, look, this is part. Of, this is within the purview of the police board. They've made the decision, and I'm going to go along with it. But I, I think, of, you know, with this other narrative going on, that that he's been insensitive uh, on on this issue right from the get go. Uh, he could have found, uh, you know, something a, a little more open to the idea of of, of being fully cooperative, and uh, you know, I'm 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 welcoming an opportunity to clear the air or something. That you know, it just made it look like uh, he had absolutely nothing to do with the decision, and and clearly it was a, pl- a board decision. But um, you would expect him to play a little more active role, or at least portray himself as being a little more involved. John, why is it taking the board so long to respond to this? And and I'm I'm talking about even reaction, not necessarily a policy such as what they've decided to do here. But aside from from Mayor Eisenberger, who of course is the chair of the Police Services Board. 
Uh, I don't know that the community's heard from anybody on the police services board to any great extent about this issue and, and the concerns that have been raised, which were immediate after that, yet there was nothing but silence. I think what you're looking at is the, is the culture of these various boards, uh, the police board being the most, uh, probably the best example. There, there's kind of a culture of um, when you get on these boards that, that your job is not to represent the public interest. Uh, you very quickly, um, the job becomes, at least in the minds of the members, that you're somehow an enabler of whatever the police want to do. You're, you're kind of an echo chamber, kind of a cheerleading group and um there you know so there's very little in the way of what we would normally think of as board oversight uh it's mostly more of an enabling role and and it's not just with the police board you you know i mean we've seen it with waterfront trust and we've seen it with any number of of these uh arm so-called arm arm's length boards there, there's kind of a culture uh it's a board governance issue and uh, whereas, uh, you know, experts on board governance like Faye Booker will tell you that boards should be vigilant. They, you know, they should challenge management from time to time. Um, the, the reality is that even at the corporate level, boards tend to be uh, very passive. And, and I, I think that's probably why this, this one was so slow to get off the mark. Well, I think it's added to the frustration and, frankly, the anger in, in, from some members of the community because of that silence and, and that inaction over such a, a long period of time. And I'm not suggesting for a second that we wanted to see somebody, you know, vilifying the, the police, and say, you know, but, but at least asking some of the questions that we have been asking for the last little while uh, on a public forum to say, hey, we need to find out just what happened, who said what, and why this occurred in the first place. And uh, as you mentioned, here it is October, and they're just getting around to doing it now. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, you know, I'm I'm not optimistic that we're going to get, uh, you know, if if the name of the game is is healing uh, in the community, I I think that's going to be uh, that's that's going to be too much to expect uh, from this exercise. But it'll certainly it will provide. Now, the other question is, how is this? Uh, uh, inquiry going to be conducted? Is it all going to be behind closed doors, or is there going to be a forum where people come in and and openly um, uh, give testimony or whatever? I I don't know. I'm I'm sort of of two minds on that. I mean, uh, it would be good if the public could see the process unfold. On the other hand, there may be a large number of people who are not comfortable presenting themselves, uh, you know, in a public forum to talk about it, but. It's going to be um, it's going to be a real Solomon challenge for whoever gets the job of um, of trying to sort this out, and uh, you know, good luck. I guess is the best thing I could say. Well, and I want to hear from I want to hear from police services on this too about you know the decisions that were made, the policies that are in place, uh, and and you know the subsequent uh, action or some would consider non-action, I guess, by police services with some of the other concerns that have been raised in this. I mean, this is. This is a this is a big topic, and there's an awful lot going on here. And uh, now that they finally decided to do this, and I'm not quite ready to jump on board and say, "Well, better late than never." I, I'm still concerned about the timing on this. But uh, there's a huge responsibility here. I, I I think you're right. There's no way that whatever they're going to do over the next couple of months uh, is going to you know bring closure to this whole situation. But there's got to be, a, I think, a, a concerted effort here to bring out the truth about what happened. Uh, no matter how much it hurts certain individuals, and simply say that you know, let's lay this thing bare and and let's talk about what's going on and how we can fix things. There's been a lot of damage done, uh, you know, as as we now 
look back over the last three or four months, there's, there's certainly no question there's been uh, significant damage done to the image of the Hamilton Police Services. Um, certainly, it's not just within the, uh, you know, the gay community. Um, uh, you know, they're the at this point uh, the aggrieved party, but I, I think, you know, sort of most liberal-minded people looking at the situation would say that the police have have really got a black eye on this, and uh, and yet we see them. You know, we we have to remember that it's the same police services board that we're seeing acting with with such sensitivity around this terrible murder that took place at uh, at Winston Churchill, and you know that's the same police that are they're providing those kind of services on a daily basis, uh, comforting people and and protecting people. So you know uh, this monolithic idea about uh, about the police, I think uh, you know it doesn't really wash either. What about the timing of the? Well, we talk about the timing, but the time that is uh, well supposedly taken uh, for this thing. Uh, one of the board members uh, suggested that uh, they're going to have this report uh, in time for the next Pride rally, which is next June. I mean, that's that's what seven, eight months from now. Uh, is it really going to take that long to get to the bottom of this? Well. Uh, it's hard to say because we don't know what the terms of reference are, and and I think there's a um, uh, there's a, a desire to not be overly prescribing of what the terms of reference are because then that will seem like uh, we're stacking the deck. So I I would guess that the idea of having a report back uh, before next June is is kind of the the outer limit. Um, I I don't think it should take that long, uh, really, but. Uh, you know the other problem is that that you know if they're if they're calling for witnesses to give some kind of testimony or statements, um, who's going to come forward? Um, it's likely people that have a real stake in the issue. So you're you're going to get people with the more extreme uh, views in some cases um, uh, are going to be involved, and then there's going to be you know you got to remember that was a there's a lot of people that attended that event. Most yeah. of them were just there to have a good time. So, you know, it'd be interesting to hear from people that weren't directly involved in the violence as well and get their perspective on, on what unfolded that day. Are there going to be recommendations out of this, do you think? I mean, is this just going to be a presentation of the facts as they see them or, or as they have ascertained, or are they going to recommend action or, or uh, to, to some degree to, uh, to try to assuage some of the concerns here? Well, uh, I don't know uh, is the real answer. Um, I mean, clearly there's some fence-mending needed uh, in our community. Um, and, and I don't know with the current players uh, in some ways on both sides. I'm not sure that's possible. I think the narrative is is becoming set in stone. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, it's probably going to take a fresh set of eyes uh, to to kind of get through this uh, this issue, but right now there's a there's a very solid perception that um, this police services uh, is insensitive when it comes to uh, LBGQ community, and uh, you know something's got to be done uh, to you know to very visibly demonstrate that that's not the case. Not sure it's possible within this uh, exercise. We'll find out, I guess, as this rolls out. Uh, John, as always, thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've uh, driven on the Red Hill over the last uh, few months, I guess now, and uh, you think you've noticed a, a larger police presence, uh, you would be right. 
Uh, this is all in response, of course, to the uh, stories we've been talking about in this program for many, many months now about the uh, well, the buried report about the condition of the uh, the asphalt and, uh, of course, the fatalities that have occurred on that road since it opened, really. And uh, police have responded to this. Well, uh, with those increased enforcements on the Red Hill, uh, there's now talk about making it a permanent traffic detail there. Joining us to talk about how that might work out is uh, Marty Schulenberg, who is the superintendent of support services with Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Marty, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us sitting. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I've driven the link. I usually, but once a week or there, I'm on the Red Hill as well, and I have seen uh, a number of the officers. Sadly, they usually have somebody pulled over, so this is kind of a good news, bad news. The fatalities are down. I know the collisions are down, uh, but uh, I'm not so sure if they're getting the message about speeding. What what, what can you tell us about what you guys have found as you've uh, patrolled up and down? Yeah, for for sure, and thanks for having us on this morning, uh, Bill. It's an important message, and and we're glad that uh, attention is being drawn to the issue. Um, I can tell you that over the last uh, number of years that we, uh, of course, as you know, have seen an increase in total collisions on on the Red Hill, uh, also on the Link as well, but specifically uh, the Red Hill. And this has been building for us. It's been a it's been a progression in terms of attention, and also with respect to added enforcement. So. In 2016, we had a, a special project in relation to enforcement on both the Lincoln Red Hill, and uh, that has led to, uh, as you know, this year, a specific voluntary paid duty program initiative uh, that was spoken about at our board meeting yesterday, where we see two officers over a 12-hour period uh, providing extra enforcement duties on the Red Hill, specifically as a result of that increase in collisions. So, and and the numbers, I, I think, indicate that this has been a pretty effective way of, of approaching this. Uh, as uh, was reported at the the board meeting, I guess, yesterday, uh, 41 people injured on that road in 2017, 39 in 2018, but only 13 people uh, so far this year. So so clearly, it, it seems to be working, Marty. That's right. And, and I, and I want to be cautious because I know uh, my good friend Ed Solo over at the city, Traffic Services, is going to provide the city uh, a more comprehensive review uh, come January of next year. And I can tell you that we've worked very closely with the City of Hamilton Traffic Services in relation to our strategy on this. So there is going to be a, a more fulsome uh, report on, on what that enforcement has led to. And it's not just our enforcement, it's also uh, certainly a coordinated strategy. And and again, uh, traffic uh, safety is about engineering, education, and enforcement. So we're one key piece of it. The, the other thing to, to, I think, to emphasize is that we know that visibility, police visibility, does have impact. It's not just the enforcement; it's just the, it's also the visibility. And as you suggested, yeah, 13 uh, personal injury collisions. If you take the property damage collisions as well as the per- personal injury, there's been a total of 32 of them that we've responded to. There are. It's important to know that there are also collisions reported to the collision reporting centers that are separate from that. But in terms of what we as a police service have responded to, 32 incidents over the six-month period, 17 of them prior to March 25th when we started the, uh, the, the initiative, and only 13 since. So the numbers speak for themselves, and, uh, and certainly we've seen uh, an improvement in that respect. However, there's still more work to be done. Uh, and as noted yesterday at the board meeting, uh, our mean uh, speeding is still 30 kilometers over the average when we stop those uh, those violators. Uh, and I'm glad you brought that up about the coordination with the city because obviously they're playing a part in this too. And uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention about the resurfacing of the road and a number of other factors that have gone into this. But but you're getting right back to, I guess, job one here, Marty, and it's always been the concern when I talk to you or to, to Klaus Wagner or to the chief. Uh, it's it's excessive speed. That that seems to be a major problem, and uh, it's on that road and just about every other road that we have here in the city. 
That's right, and and uh, we also know uh, specifically as a result of research, it's it's not just our own observations, but research tells us that crash risk will increase proportionally with speed. So that's an important fact that I think we need to consider in terms of our strategies. But it really is a coordinated effort with the city uh, around the education and the engineering, and I think you've seen that in this particular case. It's the three-pronged approach that's uh, brought about so far and and again I'll qualify that we're 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 a few months into this initiative but you know hopefully uh, by next january um the community will hear some very good results uh, from from the city report um but the other piece of this is the city's strategy towards um vision zero and uh, as you probably know that's a that's a citywide initiative towards uh, traffic fatalities and serious injuries and the goal there is uh, is very simple zero fatalities and zero injuries on our roadways in the city of hamilton so that's the overall goal we're working in concert with the city uh, but it does require real change uh, and investment uh, from uh, public dollars to be able to make that happen so in all three areas education engineering and enforcement it requires an investment Marty, how uh, detailed can you be with, with your input into the city about some of the concerns that have been raised over the last little while? Because as you know, when this was, uh, I guess, really on the front burner, uh, there were concerns, obviously, about the fatalities, about the collisions, uh, about the condition of the, the asphalt itself, even the design of the road. And I, know I remember talking to Chief Gert when he was in here for one of his town halls just around that time. Uh, and who used to patrol that, of course, uh, uh, oftentimes. And, and he said, yeah, there, there may be sh- and probably should be some discussion about design and, and the way the road is actually constructed and the way the ramps uh, are supposed to merge in with the traffic and situations like that. As, as your officers are, are, are on there all the time and patrolling all the time, I know they have to write reports about this. Do they, do they, can they, or are they allowed, I guess, to get detailed about their views and their observations about what they see? Yeah, no, that's a good question, and uh, certainly uh, we're cognizant of, uh, uh, if you will, staying within our own, own lane on that conversation. Yeah. Uh, we're not engineers, um, but we do understand um, that, uh, you know, w- the patrols that happen every day and hearing the feedback from, from our officers is that, um, you know, the design changes that have been implemented have certainly um, been helpful uh, for our officers. Um, but another thing to consider now is also the impact with the with respect to the increased speed limit on on the Queen Elizabeth Way, and as uh, as motorists exit that roadway and come onto the link, they're they're leaving a 110 kilometer zone, and so that has an impact as well in terms of what we're we're seeing out there. So, um, but but to your to your question specifically, Bill, um, I think we have a very good working relationship with traffic services from the city around the design and, and incorporating uh, the concerns and, and, uh, and thoughts and suggestions from our members as well. Yeah, because I actually made that point to, to one of the councillors. I was coming back from St. Catharines a week or so ago, uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's 110 on the Queen Elizabeth Way, and as soon as you get onto that ramp onto the Red Hill, it's 80. Uh, and, uh, and if you don't know that, uh, you know, then then you're obviously you're going way too fast, and, and then that can be a problem. Obviously, the, you could be stopping at the same time. Uh, you're increasing the risk of some sort of a collision too. I I suggested there should be better signage about the reduced speed limit coming up ahead or something like that. But and again, that's that's something that the city and is, is going to have to to deal with, I guess. But take suggestions like that as as we adopt to the new normal now with that 80 kilometer speed limit. Uh, do you find that that is act people are behaving in that zone? Because I, I notice every time when we're going down there, by the time you hit that 80, uh, and again, I don't think that's well marked either. And that's something that has to be concerned because that seems to be, every time I'm down there, that seems to be where I see your offices more often than not, right around that area, around the King Street exit ramp. 
Yeah, it's a, that's a good point. Um, anecdotally, I, I am hearing some some good uh, reports back from from our officers. Um, what I will say, though, specifically to that is, as you know, we've had the move over campaign that we've spoken about many times with respect to emergency services uh, providers, and that includes uh, our, our tow drivers as well as EMS, fire, and police. When uh, when you as a motorist see uh, traffic enforcement going on, and you see an emergency service vehicle on the side of the road, we do need uh, we do need folks to move over and create space there, slow down and move over, and that's really important. Um, there's only so many lanes to play with there. The shoulder is only so wide, and uh, and it is important when when you, you come around that corner and you see that enforcement happening. It's for everybody's safety. Uh, it's it, it's about education, but uh, a critical piece of that for the safety of our members is making sure that we adhere to the move over laws as well. Yeah, and let's uh, remind our listeners as well that is the law. That's not just a suggestion and a courtesy. Uh, it's it's the law in Ontario on the highways, and, and certainly it applies to those roadways as well. To, and if you can't move over, and that happens more often than not, of course, depending on how much traffic's on the road at the time, uh, you slow down considerably, not just to the speed limit, but even slower than that until you pass uh, where the officer is. Uh, and I see that happening more and more, so I think people are finally starting to get that message. Now, I want to talk about cost, because that's always going to be something that comes up here, uh, because there was a cost uh, and money allocated for this project, and, and now we're told now that there's going to be significant cost if there's going to be a, a dedicated unit that's going to be there all the time, Marty. But my understanding, again, from the report that was uh, presented to police services yesterday, that uh, this program really pays for itself, doesn't it? It does, and it's certainly not the focus of, of the initiative, but uh, we understand that it's a factor in terms of uh, you know, deliberation around uh, the effectiveness and the return on investment in terms of our strategies. So uh, the city had committed uh, a total of $430,000 towards the extra policing in that area. I can tell you that to date we've spent uh, just in the neighborhood of, of 240000 um, and that's because, uh, A, A the, uh, the year is not through, and uh, B, uh, not every paid duty, this, keep in mind this is a voluntary program at this point, uh, not every opportunity has been filled either. So uh, we do believe that going forward um, we will have to look at transitioning from a voluntary program to something that's more permanent. And that'll, if in fact is the direction you're going to go, that'll be something that'll happen at budget time. But you mentioned about the cost so far this year, but uh, the report yesterday indicates that uh, on average you've raised probably close to $700,000 in fines, uh, people that have been stopped along the way. So it's, uh, it is paying for itself. It's not really costing us money. That money that was presented up front there has, uh, has been more than redistributed because, as we know, uh, money from fines in, in this particular situation go right back into the city coffers. That's correct. Yeah, if, I mean, if you if you look at the fines generated, uh, that certainly would be the case. And and so from a strictly from a financial perspective, if you if you're looking at that as as a variable, then it certainly does uh, pay for itself. But again, um, as I mentioned earlier, our our Vision Zero strategy really is about uh, investment. Uh, so notwithstanding the the good news piece around this paying for itself, the investment uh, does require some commitment uh, in terms of dollars and cents towards uh, enforcement strategies. And and to, just to cut off anybody, because I'm going to get emails every time we talk about uh, traffic fines, etc., that it's just a cash grab. I know you probably heard that, I don't know how many times, Marty, if you've pulled somebody over over the years. Uh, as former Chief DeCaro always said, uh, compliance is free. If you're not speeding, you're not going to get a ticket. Absolutely, I can't. Uh, I can't add any more value to that statement. Uh, certainly, compliance is free, and and like I say, uh, the the strategy is not just about enforcement. It's also about the education and the engineering. So, 
but with respect to traffic fines, uh, certainly in this case, uh, we have seen that uh, it certainly does pay for itself. And we've seen that with other programs that, uh, that have been initiated by the city to do with traffic control, even the red light cameras, of course. Uh, that, then again, the, the money that's generated from those fines seems to be paying for the program, so it's not really costing taxpayers anything. Out. I hope, Marty, that someday... It, it pays... Certainly, it pays for the program, and, and that's a good point. The red light uh, camera fund, again, that's not operated by the police. But uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, again, it's not just about the money. It's about the reduction in collisions, and uh, it's been very, very significant. And, and again, uh, we'll see when the numbers all come out in January. But uh, so far, very, very encouraging results in relation to the reduction in collisions on, on the Red Hill. And, and we're happy to see that that, uh, that we as a police agency are able to uh, contribute towards that reduction. And I, I listen, I'd love, and I probably I know you would love to, to have Chief Gert having to come before the board someday and say, uh, we're not generating enough revenue to pay for the program anymore, because that would mean that there's more compliance. People are slowing down. And that, that's the ultimate goal here, isn't it? That is the goal, and certainly this weekend, as we move into another long weekend with Thanksgiving, that's uh, that's something we want to you know share with the with the motoring public as well. Um, our focus this weekend is going to be thanks is going to be uh, seatbelts and impaired uh, driving, and uh, we'd love to come back and say that you know the numbers this year are lower than last year in terms of enforcement. So uh, that's our challenge, and, uh, and and we hope that's the case. Marty, we're talking and seem to be focusing an awful lot on on, on speeding, which obviously is a major problem here. But uh, the officers that are on duty on the Red Hill, are, as you mentioned, are looking for other things too. You mentioned seatbelts. Uh, distracted driving is, is still the, uh, a major concern, not just here in Hamilton, but it seems to be right across the country these days. Uh, are your officers seeing more of that, or are, are people starting to get the message about that as well? I, I think it continues to be a challenge for us. Um, I'll be honest with you. Uh, when I, uh, even on my uh, on my travels through the city and on my way home, as I, I look in uh, vehicles to to beside me at the red lights, seems to be a bit of a trend that people think that once we slow down a little bit, we can get back on the cell phones. And and the same applies to when there's traffic congestion. People uh, people get bored, and we live in an age where we're constantly being stimulated. So that continues to be a challenge for us. Um, our hope is that uh, as we as we continue our initiative on the Lincoln Red Hill, that we'll be able to put some strategies in place specifically to deal with the distracted driving. But you're right, uh, distracted driving and aggressive driving continue to be our our leading causes, as well as impairment as well. And and the new dimension now with impairment by drug uh, adds additional challenges to that. Uh, the possibility of increasing this program, and I know some of the members of the Police Services Board talked about this, uh, they talked about uh, speed detention equipment uh, may, may be involved in, in whatever budget's going to come. I guess that would be alcohol screening devices, breath tests, and this sort of things. Uh, is there anything else there that, that would be used as tools to try to work this uh, this program? We, yeah, we we principally use either uh, radar or or lidar, so either uh, either of the two devices. Um, and lidar is the more preferred option by our members. It's basically a, a red dot laser beam that um, that uh, detects the speed of of the vehicle. And so that would, de- of course, be a cost that would be considered in relation to how many of those do we need. Uh, relative to the enforcement strategy that we put in place. It's a little early to speculate in terms of what that would look like and how many devices we would need. Um, you know, working with the chief, we'd have to take a look at, uh, you know, what the options are uh, on the table with respect to that. Yeah, and as you say, the, the, I guess the budget's not going to be presented for another few months anyway, so they've got time to crunch some numbers on this. Uh, looks like some positive movement on this, and hopefully uh, there'll be a lot more compliance as uh, you move forward on this, Marty. Thank you so much for the time, and uh, uh, on behalf of everybody, uh, please, uh, a big thank you to the officers that are uh, taking up the challenge on this, too, uh, for public safety for the city. 
Thanks, Bill, and we do appreciate uh, you also giving attention to the issue. It's important, and uh, wish everybody a, a happy and thank, uh, safe Thanksgiving. And to you, too. Thanks again, Marty. Okay, bye now. Marty Schulenberg, of course, Superintendent of Support Services with Hamilton Police Services. Slow down. That's the message. Uh, by the way, they say the average uh, fine uh, for those people who have been stopped on the Red Hill, especially for speeding, is about $220. So <laughs> that's a big chunk out of your wallet. And if it's distracted driving, the fines are even more significant. So keep that in mind, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Into the uh, final stretch now for the uh, Canadian election. October 21st is uh, voting day, uh, except if you want to vote in the advance poll. That's uh, happening, well, starting today, in fact. Uh, check your voting card. And uh, they'll tell you where, because it's usually not the same location as where the polling stations are going to be on Election Day themselves. Uh, So you can do that, and the hours and everything will be on there. Uh, But uh, one of the major concerns that we've talked about here, and and just about anybody who's gone through an election over the last little while, uh, are cyber attacks and the impact that those can have on elections. And uh, there have been studies done about what's happening in the Canadian election right now, and according to an independent study that was done uh, through uh, McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy and New York University Center for Cybersecurity, uh, they have studied uh, social media and determined that Canada's election so far has been largely clean. But misinformation and disinformation could yet uh, have an impact on the, in the final week or week and a half or so of the campaign. It's, it's out there. We're just not sure just how severe it's going to be. Joining us to talk about this and the impact it may have is Christo Avalos, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow of history at the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time. Good to have you on the show again today. Thanks for having me. Is it, is it inevitable that social media is going to have an impact uh, with information and disinformation? It seems to be almost the new normal now in elections. Yeah, no, certainly. I think the question is always going to be, how do we deal with it? You know, it's like misinformation existed in the traditional media, but you dealt with it through, you know, having multiple sources. You dealt with it through having, you know, scholars who studied it. You dealt with it through the public getting better at reading information. Like, the public gains a sort of literacy over time, and they become better, if not perfect, at spotting it. And with social media, what we saw is that, you know, this was a new environment, and it was very different. And I think that, you know, we're getting better tools, both technical tools, but also intellectual tools to help deal with it. And while, you know, I won't say that there, I think misinformation on social media will never leave us. Uh, maybe there is some signs that it's not playing quite the odious role that we thought. There have been some high-profile examples, whether it's the, the rumors about Justin Trudeau and, and uh, you know, him being fired, or there were earlier rumors about Jagmeet Singh owning a big mansion, or, you know, there, there's rumors facing every party. But on aggregate, it is encouraging to see that there's less information than, than we might have expected. And as bad as those were, and, and the two examples you gave about Singh and Trudeau's rumors, and they were both, by the way, debunked, uh, they still spread like wildfire on social media, but they they didn't really catch on. They weren't, I've seen them. A number of people have forwarded them to me as well. And I guess if you want to believe that sort of stuff, you're going to believe it. And if you don't like uh, Trudeau or Singh, uh, there's just one other story to substantiate that. But by and large, uh, they seem to be dismissed. But to your point, what we've noticed and I'm sure you have with the analysis that you've done on this, as we become more refined and, and maybe more studious about discerning what's right and what's wrong and what's true and not, uh, they're refining their game now too, aren't they? I mean, because there's false information now about quote-unquote fact checks, which is really just, you know, it's, it's really spin, but it's not presented as spin. No, and, and there's been a lot of, contra- even from re- very respectable sources. So in the American context, there was a, a fact check of Bernie Sanders who made the claim that three Americans have more wealth than the bottom half of America, which is objectively true. If you 
Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, you know, have more wealth than the entirety of the bottom half of America combined. And the Washington Post called that a lie because they said it doesn't count because poor people don't have wealth. But that's the point Bernie was making. And so even these fact checks, even from some of the most reputable sources, and I've written for the Washington Post, um, will be used uh, to actually be narrative-based. So, you know, even within traditional media, there's concerns. And, and a more recent concern, this isn't really fake news, but, uh, you know, there's been some controversy about the recent National Post front cover. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, where it was presented uh, fairly clearly as an, a front cover, but it was really an anti-Justin Trudeau ad, I believe, purchased by the Conservatives or some other group. And it was made to look like a front cover, but it was really somebody shelled out the big bucks to buy a full-page ad. Now, it did say paid advertisement, but only in a very small print relative to the thing. So even within our traditional media, there are concerns about how things are presented. It's not fake, but it's not not fake, if that makes any sense. I know, and I, uh, some people might think that, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs with words, but, I mean, that that's how they do that. I mean, that's how they, they try to make it look authentic, by making it so close to real that you just consider that it is real. No, no, certainly. And, of course, it gives them legal and uh, and political and, you know, social cover. So, you know, so, for instance, you know, uh, some newspapers, uh, you know, in some of their sections will run what are effectively advertisements disguised as articles. And it's sort of like if in some place they make that somewhat obvious, then they feel they've done their job. But as we know, not everyone will see those things all the time, and people might not see that. And so the effect is that it's presented as journalism even though it's advertisement. And, of course, legally the source can say, well, if you read the fine print, then, then it was clear. There was an advertisement. But, but you know, it, I don't think that's fair to the readers. There's what's legal and there's what's fair, and I feel like that's a major concern right now. And, of course, online that's an issue as well. You know, the, I guess the foundation for, for why social media has almost becoming the new battleground for these election campaigns and some of the, the misinformation that goes on, Christo, is is that it can be a very effective tool for political parties, can it? I mean, because, on, on for instance, on Facebook, you can direct uh, you know, your information to exactly the demographic that you want. Uh, because that information is readily available on Facebook, you know if you want to reach uh, women 18 to 35, you can get a list from Facebook about here's a whole bunch of women 18 to 35, send them the message. You know, Facebook and other social media, in a way that traditional media can't, um, offers micro-targeting tactics. I mean, for instance, you know, in traditional media, I guess if, like, you wanted to reach young people, politicians may, in the past, they would go on much music. You know, they would do things like that, like imperfect tools. You know, you'd, mm -hmm. you'd find ways to reach particular demographics, like senior citizens tend to watch the news at this hour. I'm going to go on the news because I want to reach senior citizens. But now it's like, yeah, you can target ads based on demographics, based on gender, based on age, based on income, based on fairly specific geography. So local candidates even can target their ads to their ridings. They don't just have to, you know, your, your local candidate in Hamilton doesn't just need to, you know, put, put out an ad on Facebook that goes to everybody in Ontario. They can target that. And so it gives immense opportunities for both positive things which is to say, like, you know, getting your message out to the people who need to hear it, but also negative things, which is about, you know, peeling off voters from other parties by attacking them. So let's say you want women to vote for you. You know that women will respond negatively to something another party has done. So you put out an attack ad micro-targeted to young women, which has the effect of pulling their voters towards you, or at the very least, just away from your 
your principal talent or if they go to other parties, that's fine too. And so with fake news as well, you know, third parties can use the same thing. Third party spenders, uh, groups that are, you know, not affiliated with parties, let's say in a formal sense, but have political, you know, goals and interests can do this. You know, Ontario Proud was very successful yeah. at this. Mm-hmm. And of course, beyond all that, there's a factor with social media is that not all of this is purely driven by ideology or politics. Uh, one of the big things that was discovered in the 2016 election um, was that some of the fake news was just being made up to make money, and primarily by people in countries like the former, uh, former Yugoslavia, uh, you know, former Republic of Yugoslavia and Macedonia. They, uh, that is a country with relatively high levels of Internet access and English literacy, but it's a, it's a relatively poor country by European standards. And so for them, the, the small amounts of money you make on YouTube and Google clicks are much higher to them. So they would just make up fake news both about Clinton and Trump. Some of the websites would make fake news about both parties in equal amounts. And the goal was to generate uh, outrage clicks on social media. They actually did not care about the result. So there's that potential factor as well, just making money. Yeah, so just as we said, they can be a very positive and useful tool for legitimate advertising in these campaigns. Uh, but the bad guys know that too, <laughs> so and they're using it. The, yes. And the third party folks that you talked about, Christo, they seem to be more and more. I know uh, the study that I referenced here that was done by McGill and New York Universities uh, talks about a couple of those groups. Uh, one is called Election Fact Check, which is actually a conservative organization uh, paid for by the Conservative Party under the guise of it. And it's like, no, 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 we're going to give you the straight facts here, but it's still political spin. Uh, there's another one called Canada Fact Check, which I, we're told is a, is being paid for by a, a left wing group. So they're out there, uh, but they're not being as as upfront as as you know as you suggested they probably should be by saying, "Look, at this is just a, advertisements. It's done under the guise of of a news story, or in other words, to correct a news story that somebody else might have put out." And it can be very confusing for voters. No, certainly, and again, like the name Fact Check. It's giving the, 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 like, you know, it's like we're the truth tellers. Yeah. We're going to correct the record. And again, what, maybe in some cases they are. Maybe in some cases they are legitimately taking uh, a misunderstanding about uh, the conservatives and correcting it. Or of the liberals or, 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 or you know, there are groups maybe uh, equivalents for other parties. And maybe part of their job is to honestly correct information, misinformation and, and, and deceit from, from their opponents. But of course, like what they're portraying as fact-checking is often, you know, wielded ideologically. And again, this is something we see from these third-party groups, but we've, again, we've seen some of this stuff from traditional media. And this is something I need people to, to understand is that, you know, when we talk about fake news, like in our era, we often associate it with social media. We associate it with new media. But fake news has existed forever. I mean, there's fake news was used to justify wars. Fake news was used to justify racism. Fake news was used to justify all sorts of things. And journalists, in some cases, were knowingly producing fake news because it served the interests of a particular government or of the owner of their paper or of themselves or what have you, right? So fake news has not left us. And again, this narrative now is that people are so worried about fake news, we've put a lot of new faith in fact-checkers, whether they're at official sources or unofficial sources, but we don't always realize that the fact-checkers themselves are sometimes not so much checking facts, but policing narratives. And that's fine, but it's not a you know black-and-white thing. Narratives are interpreted differently by different people, and that's the nature of politics. So you're going back to Washington Post. Again, they'll say Bernie Sanders 
lied basically when he said the bottom half of people have less wealth than the top three Americans. Uh, but when it was objectively true that the Washington Post, I think, had a certain narr- narrative, of course, its owner being one of those three people. Um, and I think a lot of people said, well, here's where fact-checking just becomes another spin piece. And I think that is something that people need to start realizing, because as you noted, as we get more literate on some aspects of fake news, we got to keep doing it. It's a never-ending game. How much of an influence uh, do, do groups have now? I mean, you know, the, the Mueller report, and I know some people want to be dismissive of that, but there are there is solid evidence in the Mueller report about interference from the Russians and as to you know who they were cohorting with. I mean, that's debatable, I suppose, but it's it's pretty much I think conceded now that Cambridge Analytica had a lot to do with that. We also know in hindsight now that Cambridge Analytica had a huge influence in the Brexit referendum in in uh, the UK a couple of years ago as well. Uh, the, the lid's kind of been blown off. I mean, Cambridge Analytica doesn't exist anymore. And there's actually been, an, a, as you know, an expose book. One of the guys that was the major driving force in that has written a book about this now, uh, basically about how they did it. But there are copycats out there, and, and, and under, under as you say, different names and, and using the kind of lingo that we're used to that to, to look for if we want legitimate news. So it, it's, again, I guess putting a, a lot more of the onus on us now to be very discerning about what we actually uh, take in and say, okay, I I believe this now because uh, it seems to be a reliable source. Well, yeah, it, it, it really has changed the game uh, in some ways for the better. It used to be that, and, and again, I, I, I read a really good piece about how Trump may get impeached. We don't know. We like As the investigations unfold, um, stuff might go so bad that even Republicans will be compelled. But what happened in Nixon's era is there were, you know, niche left-wing and right-wing publications. But for the most part, you know, there were three news channels, and they were all highly credible with the public. Upwards of 70% of more or more of people trusted their nightly news. They trusted Walter Cronkite. They trusted that, right? And so um, it was very easy to kind of put forth a singular narrative. Now, that's dangerous if that narrative is wrong because there was fake news from those very trusted sources. But what's happened in our own era is you have much more ability to get ideologically, ideological diversity in your news, but that also means that there will be constant you know, misinformation as well that's harder to police and corral. So some suggest that Trump would almost certainly be impeached in the context of a 1970s media environment, but with Fox News and with various right-wing media outlets of varying qualities and, scrupul- and scruples, he might not get impeached because there will be constant pressure against impeachment from these right-wing media sources who will generate outrage amongst their viewership to prevent Republicans from maybe doing what is the right thing, which is impeaching the president. And, and, and they act actually as a safe harbor, I guess, for people that are going to stand behind a candidate on either side of the spectrum. If, you, you know, if a, a Nixon or a Trump or anybody else is getting barraged by uh, the majority of the media, you know that, hey, I can go to this channel or I can read this paper, and I, they're going to substantiate my points of view no matter what else is going on in the world. And you're right, that didn't exist back in the 1970s. No, not on a mass scale. Again, like there was near lower right-wing publications, there were left-wing publications. Oh, sure, yeah. monthlies. You know, like, 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 you know, newspapers that were published sometimes on a weekly or, or monthly schedule, those were there. But in terms of, you know, what you could get, it was like, you know, you'd have a couple newspapers, you would have, you know, the three network news in the United States, you know, in Canada, we would have CBC, you might have, depending on when it's, you know, the CTV as well, maybe. And like, that was the news, you know, maybe it had something of a center, center, right lean, like a lot of 
mass media did, but it wasn't, you know, there was no wide ideological divergence in the media. And so as such, you know, it was, it was a lot easier or a lot harder to bubble yourself. Nowadays, more views are reflected, and that's, that, that's good, but it does mean that if your goal of media is to help create a more unifying narrative, then that's become almost impossible uh, due both to the, the amount of stuff available, but just the Internet, you consume Internet media in a different way. There was something to be said, not only that there were, say, only three channels covering the news every night, but that in a pre-24-hour news cycle, the way you watched the news was everybody in the whole country basically sat down at the same time to watch the guy on TV tell you the news. And even though you did that from your own house, you didn't all gather in, a, in a, an arena to do it. You know, you knew that kind of everyone was watching this right now. And I do think that creates a different narrative. Even if we all consume traditional media, it's like not everyone watches The National at 9 o'clock on the CBC. They might watch it, but they might watch it on Facebook or they might watch it later uh, you know, at night, or they might watch it the next day. It's like that that different way of consuming media is playing a role, too. Christo, as always, thanks for this. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks so much. Christo Avelis from University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.